Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Prison, prison,
beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here on Prison Focus Radio. I am your host, Nube Brown, and you are tuned into KPOO San Francisco 89.5, or you may be listening on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Either way, I am glad that you are here, and we are going to be starting off the show um, with the acknowledgement that uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal has been denied his right to a new trial by uh, Judge Lucretia Clemens. This is an in- not surprising, but it is still disappointing, and yet we will continue to fight for the freedom of our uh, people behind the walls, um, our political prisoners, our prisoners of war, our politicized prisoners, our community members, our family, our people who are being um, genocided and um, continually subjected to uh, crimes against humanity, against their humanity, and thus our humanity. So let's get moving. In the name of love, not fear, says Mumia Abu-Jamal. All right, here is the first message from Noel Hanrahan, who has been providing the platform on prison radio for Mumia for decades now. This is where you will hear all of his commentary, all of his message to the people over all of these years. Um, Thank you, Noel Hanrahan, for this incredible um, relationship that you have shared uh, with all of us. Um, it, through your work with Prison Radio and any of you that uh, want to know more about or hear from Mumia Abu-Jamal, if you do not know, and I hope there are new people that are listening to the show that actually don't know much about Mumia Abu-Jamal and that, um, uh, and, and so now is your opportunity. Go to prisonradio.org and also Love Not Fear. But this is her message from the first, from the day that Judge Lucretia Clemens denied Mumia uh, his request for a new trial. Dear friend, it starts with a quote, quote, Mumia is the community. Mumia is the world movement. Mumia is the heartbeat when we talk about revolutionary thinkers. And you know, Mumia represents all that are in prison. Mumia's story as a political prisoner is the story of your family members and your friends who are being held behind bars from a racist system. So we're not stopping. We're not stopping at all. Jamal Jr. on Black Power Media. And Jamal Jr. is Jamal Hart, the grandson of Mumia. Today at 4.08 p.m., March 31st, 2023, Common Pleas Court Judge Lucretia Clemens denied Mumia Abu-Jamal's request for a new trial. This is simply devastating news. After 43 years in prison, Mumia Abu-Jamal has exhausted nearly all of his avenues for relief. Make no mistake, justice required that Mumia Abu-Jamal be given a new trial. The enemy now is time. At 68 years old, Mumia is suffering from cardiac disease and has had a double bypass and nearly died from lack of treatment for acute hepatitis C. If you put thick blinders on that block out all reality and rely on procedural minutiae for cover, honestly, it is still impossible to avoid the scorchingly blatant racism of trial judge Albert Sabo, 
Assistant District Attorney Joseph McGill, Mayor and former Police Chief Frank Rizzo, District Attorney during Mumia's trial Ed Rendell, and Ron Castile, DA and former Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice. Okay, and then there's an excerpt um, from the actual uh, ruling. Accordingly, the record establishes that defendant's Brady evidence is not material and that defendant's, Brady's, defendant's Brady claims are therefore without merit. Conclusion. In sum, defendant's Batson claim is time-barred and waived and defendant's Brady claims are meritless. Therefore, defendant's six PCRA petition is dismissed without an evidentiary hearing. By the court, Lucretia Clements. First, defendant's Baston claim is time-barred and waived, so this court does not have jurisdiction to reach it. Second, defendant's Brady claims lack merit. Even if the court accepts all of defendant's proffered facts as true, considers what defendant could present at an evidentiary hearing, and draws all reasonable inferences in defendant's favor, defendant cannot show that the alleged Brady information was material to his first-degree murder conviction. For the reasons herein, defendant's sixth PCRA petition is subject to dismissal. Okay, we're going to continue. Striking blacks from the jury. Judge Clemens stated that she was dismissing the claim of striking black jurors on procedural grounds, dismissing Mumia's claim about the prosecutor excluding black people from the jury without addressing the merits of the claim. One only has to look at the McMahon training tapes that were made by the Philadelphia DA's office, which instructed prosecutors how to strike black jurors. The tapes were made after Mumia's trial, but they document the practice, which was the norm in the office. Suborning perjury, paying witnesses. Additionally, there's the note from supposed eyewitness Robert Chobert that asked Prosecutor McGill after the trial, quote, where is the money that is owed to me, unquote. This note was scrubbed from any filings and buried by the prosecution for 40 years. This dramatic Brady evidence previously unavailable to the defense was dismissed by the judge in her written opinion as not being material, meaning it would not have affected the jury's verdict or meaning it would not have affected the jury's verdict, exclamation point. Underlying this is the wholesale adoption of the credibility determinations of the original trial court judge Albert, quote, I am going to help them fry the N-word, Sabo. It allows his racist, tainted rulings to stand. Judge Clemens also dismissed records from Prosecutor McGill that extensively track and monitor another key witness, Cynthia White, whose pending criminal cases were all dropped by the prosecution following her testimony. Quote, it's heartbreaking. Mumia is a scholar. He is a good dude who is being framed up by Philadelphia for a murder he didn't commit. The judge knows this, the prosecution knows this, and it really saddens me that they won't give my grandfather the freedom that he deserves. Jamal Jr. on Black Power Media. Cuando luchamos, ganamos. When we fight, we win. This is the second message from Noelle Hanrahan after she visits with Mumia 
and shares with him the 39-page denial of Mumia's right to a new trial. I saw Mumia yesterday, and he was deeply affected by the blow, the gravity, the gut-wrenching disappointment that freedom will be delayed again. I brought him Judge Clemens' 38-page, quote, opinion. He read the words carefully, first retrieving his reading glasses from his shirt pocket. Hunched over, he read through each and every line, words that were written to bury him, words meant to extinguish hope, pages that would bind him, an opinion that will keep in place the full body cavity strip search before and after every visit an order that would deny him the food and exercise that could heal his broken heart and his cardiac condition. Pages that separate him from his great-grandchildren, his brothers, his sons, his daughter. Words that prevent him from receiving the healing embrace of his people as he weeps and aches for Wadia, his wife of 41 years, who passed away in December. Its promise of finality is really a transparent attempt to cover up what everyone knows to be true. Police, prosecutors, and yes, now judges, have stolen decades from the lives of black Philadelphians. It is a promise that would have the injustice system stay the same, unchallenged, with Mumia remaining locked in a cage until his last breath. And yet, yesterday, Sunday, April 2nd, I met with a man full of life. Mumia, deeply engaged in his doctoral dissertation using Fanon to measure his, this new world, sketching out the future, the day the wretched of the earth shall be vindicated, willing into being the real narrative, a counter-narrative that both calls forth and imagines freedom. I met a man who was engaged in the world and, yes, full of hope for all of us and for himself. Mumia's hearty belly laugh is impossible not to join in. He is very, very funny. I have to ask him to, come on, please, just stop. Don't make me laugh at these god-awful absurdities. Mumia's love is courageous. It is honest, eyes wide open and fearless, and transformative for all of us. And then there's a written note uh, here that says, My friends... Such sad news, but we march on, as we must. I love you all, in love, not fear, Mumia. And then following that, there is a poem from Julia Wright. The judge may have stamped her foot, waved her gavel like a white supremacist wand, and said no, but this morning... I cannot find no blues, for Mumia, the judge, may have enjoyed champagne and selfies with those who pull her electoral strings, but this morning, I cannot find no blues, for Mumia. I cannot find no blues, cause the whole wide world is crying, not tears, not a river, but deafening freedom for Mumia, and the judge is powerless to stop it. We understand that we are here because Mumia Abu-Jamal survived being shot in the chest as he ran across the street to help his brother and the fallen officer, Daniel Faulkner. On December 9, 1981, at 3 a.m. in the morning at 
13th and Locust in downtown Philadelphia. Mumia Abu-Jamal had just stopped his cab and was letting off a patron. He leapt out of his cab, ran across the street after seeing his brother's VW pulled over and Bill being beaten with a nightstick by Philadelphia cop Daniel Faulkner. There is no debate about what happened next. Daniel Faulkner shot Mumia in the chest. Mumia goes down with a bullet through his lung. Someone else then fatally shoots Faulkner and runs away. At that moment, our world and Mumia's world were torn apart. Each time I go to the prison, I pull the books. I am working with off my shelf. Sorry, each time I go to the prison, I pull the books I am working with off my shelf. Today was Police Misconduct by Paul Messing and A Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. I bring them in, put them on the table, share them, corners turned down, paragraphs underlined, and go to the vending machines. I return with a bowl of delicious cherry tomatoes, olives, and onions that adorn a fresh, beautiful Greek salad, a full green sliced apple with Nutella, and a bowl of gorgeous cantaloupe, melon, and pineapple. If they can put organic salad in the vending machine, they can give him salad and fresh fruit, a cardiac healthy diet in his regular meals. Last month, they said he must wait seven months for a blood panel. He pushed back, and he is receiving the tests he needs. All PA prisoners need a heart-healthy diet, fresh food, and vegetables. Both the witness, the solidarity, the food, and the books are necessary to remain centered and alive and in resistance. When we survive, we win. When we love, we win. Cuando luchamos, ganamos. When we fight, we win. Noel Hanrahan And this from Jamal Jr., Jamal Hart, the grandson of Mumia. Mumia is the community. Mumia is the world movement. Mumia is the heart beat when we talk about revolutionary thinkers. And you know, Mumia represents all that are in prison. Mumia's story as a political prisoner is the story of your family members and your friends who are being held behind bars from a racist system. So we're not stopping. We're not stopping at all. This is him when he was speaking on Black Power Media. All right, and one last thing. I want you to hear from Judge Lucretia Clemens. In her own words, uh, this is her speaking on YouTube, Healing the Wounds of Racism. She's there at the St. Raymond of Penafort Parish. My, my grandfather was one of eight. His parents were um, Rhoda and Eddie Clemens. Um, they were a prominent family in a small town called Tutwiler, Mississippi. When my grandfather, who was the youngest boy, was about eight years old, his father was murdered um, by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and um, it threw his family from being a very prosperous family in the town into um, extreme poverty. Um, they lost their home, they lost all their possessions, and they literally, uh, his older brothers and sisters had to drop out of school and start picking cotton to survive. Um, the one saving grace my grandfather always told me was a sisterhood of nuns who provided food for the family. 
and uh, took them in when they had nowhere else to go. And it was because of that that my father, my grandfather converted to Catholicism, and that is the reason that I am Catholic today. While he was certainly grieved by the loss of his father, he was always very touched by um, those sisters who cared for him and his um, siblings and his mother. Um, and of the eight siblings, he was the only one who converted. Um, and my grandfather, um, until he passed away in 2001, was a devout Catholic. I was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a, a very Catholic city. <laughs> and um, so for me, um, I grew up in the parish where my father was baptized, where my grandparents were married. Um, and to me, being Catholic and being black um, wasn't unusual. It wasn't until I got uh, left St. Louis and came to the East Coast that I realized that there weren't <laughs> as many black Catholics in other places as there were in St. Louis. And so to me, um, I've always been a member of, a, I grew up in a parish that was a, a gospel parish that had African-American traditions alive and well. As a, as a young girl, I was in the dance ministry, I was a reader, I was um, an altar girl. It, the Catholic faith has always just been central to my life. And so to me, um, being black and Catholic is just authentically who I am. So I hope I bring the perspective first as a, a child of God, also as a wife and a mom of three black sons. Um, one of the most difficult things in the past year, and also in previous years, is explaining to your sons uh, who you've taught to be fair and treat everyone equally, who've learned um, from me the Beatitudes, which, are, uh, which draw have always drawn me um, to, um, to the Bible. And for them to realize that the world does, in many places does not see them as who they are, but simply uh, as what their shell is. And so it is very difficult as a mom to see your children realize that reality. And so part of what I, I believe I, I can bring to the commission is that perspective as a mom who worries about her sons and her husband and her cousins and her brother, but also as a, as a public servant um, who every day tries to do the best that they can to protect the citizens of this city and of the Commonwealth. Christ commands us to love each other as he loves us. And I believe that it is never too late to do the right thing. And it is important that people understand um, that um, we are called to do and see people for the beautiful beings that, that God created. And while people may make mistakes, um, we all have faults, we are all perfect in, in our humanity. And it is that humanity um, that um, in the words of John, John Lewis, and I'm going to paraphrase here, calls us
to get into good trouble, necessary trouble. Trouble that when you see something wrong, you say something. When you are in a position to stop something wrong, you do it. I think one of the most important uh, things to focus on is, is truth and reconciliation. Um, a familiar cry in the street um, during the social justice protests there, no justice, no peace. And while I know that many people want peace, um, they really want quiet. Quiet is not the same as peace. Peace requires justice and justice requires truth. And therefore, I believe that uh, we start this with some truth and reconciliation, with some understanding of where we have come from, um, the historical implications of that, how it is impacting people today, and how do we reconcile that history with where we are and where we want to go. All right, well, I'm going to call that eloquent hypocrisy and definitely an indictment on the state and its carceral system, the prison industrial slave complex, and how, again, this oppressive system works. So with that said, um, I'm going to bring in a couple of things. I want to invite you to, since I did mention the indictment of the state, if you have not read, I know that if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you've heard Joka Hashima Jinsai, um, the author of Indictment of the State and its Prison Industrial Slave Complex, concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. You've heard him speak on it. You've heard me read passages from it. The book is available um, right now. It is available on Amazon.com. Um, I have not yet secured another place for you to, to get that book, but I encourage you to check it out because it gives you an idea of what, <clears throat> in what context all of these judges and prosecutors and just people are operating in. So I definitely encourage you to get that. I also want to um, bring in um, another thing for you to check out, the African American Community Emergency Response Network Manual, which you can also get on Amazon.com. Dot com, uh, And this is um, also created by Abdul Olubala Shakur, um, and this comes out of the Concrete and Steel Center of Excellence that he was a founder of. But I want to give you some commentary on what he has to say about our response out here to natural disasters that are, we are constantly being, are um, uh, subjected to, but, you know, there's a huge disparity with how uh, black and brown and indigenous communities are uh, being affected or impacted, negatively impacted by these natural disasters. And there, um, uh, as opposed to uh, the European communities. Okay. So, and if you um, are new to this program, um, uh, Abdul Olubala Shakur has spent 40 years in prison, 32 plus of those years in solitary confinement, and has not once has he, this is his words, and not once have I shed a single tear for what they have done and continue to do to me, nor have I ever given them an inch. It's always can't stop, won't stop, war without terms. When my mother was still walking in her physical form, she would call me her rock 
and I have not crumbled. It ain't been easy, but I continue to walk in my power. Giving up will never be an option. It's freedom or death, death before dishonor. Abdul Olubala Shakur. Um, and the reason I read that too, uh, to tell you something a little bit about um, Abdul, but um, you know, he's extending that to us, these himself to inspire us to find our power. So this is what he has to say about these natural disasters. This is what I don't understand about our people. We will complain about every condition that we face as a people, especially those conditions that have been orchestrated by this racist and fascist government. But for the most part, we won't do anything about it. We'll talk about it, discuss it, debate it, debate about it. But for the most part, when it's time to do something about it, we only pay lip service to it. Like right now, across this country, they're having natural disasters and natural disasters, especially the tornadoes that are destroying many of the black communities in the South. But what are we doing about this? Preparation will minimize fatalities. It is that simple. There's no question about the importance of preparation. But for some reason, we as a people have not yet fully grasped the significance of being prepared. The fact that it would take work from each and every one of us to get it done should be enough to compel us to do something. We have developed a blueprint that is designed to assist our people and communities in developing an emergency response plan for their family and their community. And this plan has been available since 2005. In the last seven years, I have posted the PDF on social media providing information at no cost to anyone who wishes to have it, but the majority of our people have not taken advantage of this opportunity. Year after year after year, we are confronted with natural disasters and year after year after year we as a people fail to prepare ourselves as well as our community. We cannot blame racism or this government for our failure to react or respond in our own best interest. We can only hold ourselves accountable for our failure to do what we know needs to be done in the service of our people and community. We don't claim to have an answer to all of our problems, but we have developed, but what we have developed is just a basic blueprint, a template that will assist our people and community in preparing themselves for natural disaster or major crisis. The knowledge that is contained within our emergency manual will give you a basic idea on how to pursue this endeavor. Abdul Olubala Shakur, New African Community Emergency Response Network. Again, you can get this book by going to um, Amazon.com. It's called the African American Community Emergency Response Network Manual. It takes us all to save us all. Um, let me just also read... Uh, no, I'm not going to read the Get the book. Because, I again, this is why we provide this platform. Because we are getting, they're doing the work from the inside. They are providing us with the love. Uh, oh, well, they're providing us with what they're calling blueprints, solutions, ideas to how we can better take care of ourselves. Because we cannot rely on this system. Um for again, for all of the complaints, we are still the ones that must harness our own power to make these changes because um, the system is designed to exploit us and extract from us, not to care for us. Okay, with all of that said, um, we are going to take a quick musical break and I think we're going to come back um, with some um, updates from Setawa Nantambu Jama'a. And let me also, before I continue, 
Joka Hashima Jinsai, Abdul Olubala Shakur, and Sitawa Nantambu Jama'a are all part of what is called the strategic release class of political prisoners here in California. Um, and so um, I just, I'm wanting to mention that um, because uh, we will be talking about institutional restitution uh, further and also uh, strategic based on strategic release. Um, maybe not in this particular show this week, but um, perhaps uh, continuing on next week. If you were with us last week, you did hear Joka Hashima Jinsai speak on institutional restitution and why it's necessary and why we're going to continue to call for it. All right, we are going to take a break and uh, then we'll get back to it.
going to continue with our defense of Mumia, our support of Mumia, our love of Mumia, and also just wanting to acknowledge again that he is a political prisoner. There are many, many um, imprisoned, enslaved political prisoners, politicized prisoners, prisoners of war um, in our California, in our country's uh, prisons, gulags, uh, modern-day plantations. But before we continue, um, I do also want to uh, welcome back any of you who have been listening and to Prison Focus Radio and for all of you that are um, just tuning in. Again, you are listening to Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, here at KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and you might be listening on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Um, so uh, for those of you that have been uh, listening to this show, you know that uh, we have been reading, this might be the second time through, The Indictment of the State and Its Prison Industrial Slave Complex by Joka Hishima Jinsai, the concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. And I would like to read the preamble to this indictment. It talks about California, the California Department of Corrections and Small R Rehabilitation, but I believe that it uh, applies to all the departments of corrections throughout, again, America with 3Ks, Inc., and, um, and how this unjust political, judicial, and uh, financial mechanism of the prison industrial slave complex is working. Um, to the detriment of, of our people and, and why we continue to struggle. So I want to read this preamble and then we're going to continue uh, with, uh, again, just more about Mumia and we will be reading from, I will be reading from In Defense of Mumia. It's um, a book of, it's an anthology actually of prose, poetry, and art by a whole host of people, including Mumia Abu-Jamal. All right, but here is the preamble of the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. The U.S. Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, Title 18, Part 1, Chapter 96, was initially enacted by Congress chiefly to combat the influence of organized criminal enterprises on the political, judicial, and financial mechanisms of power in the U.S. The primary instrument used by those vested with the responsibility to prosecute such cases on behalf of the people is the indictment. However, what do we do when the institutions responsible for upholding and in some cases making the law are the chief architects of its habitual violation? What do we, the people, do in an alleged, quote, democracy when the financial gain and political power of those who are vested with the responsibility of upholding the law is inextricably linked to maximizing the number of criminal offenders under their control? when their job security, livelihood, political, and social influence is dependent on high crime and incarceration rates, when they are beholden to corporate interests in exchange for kickbacks and gratuities to ensure profits are met on the backs of a constant flow of people being imprisoned. This is the circumstance we as a society are faced with concerning the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, associated agencies, and state administrators. The office of the Attorney General in the normal course of affairs would be the body in 
vested with the responsibility of preparing, presenting, and prosecuting such an indictment. However, the Attorney General is the chief counsel for CDC small r and related officials, thus creating a conflict of interest which not only precludes them from objectivity and competently pursuing such an indictment, but the merits of the indictment itself, historically speaking, tend to support their complicity in this criminal enterprise. As such, it falls to us, as servants of the people, to prepare this indictment on the people's behalf. The transformation of the U.S. prison system into the modern prison industrial slave complex, the PISC, and California's leading role in that process is a study in the corrupting influence of money and political power on the very mechanisms of public safety. Though this particular indictment is focused on the California system, it is our contention that this criminal enterprise is endemic of the modern PISC and as such exists in every U.S. prison system. Therefore, this indictment can serve as a blueprint for the people to employ nationally. Title 18, S. 1961, defines racketeering activity in part as, quote, any act or threat involving murder, kidnapping, robbery, bribery, extortion, dealing in controlled substances, or any act which is indictable under any provision of Title 18, unquote. These indictable acts include offenses relating to everything from embezzlement to mail fraud, from slavery to the exploitation of children, and CDCR, small r, has presided over or facilitated all of these acts and much, much more. The underlying basis of the following is founded on a readily observable and fairly predictable premise. The industrialization of human bondage in capitalist America corrupted the instruments of criminal justice from the very outset. The biggest industry in the state of California is not agriculture, tourism, the technology of Silicon Valley, or the movie industry in Hollywood. No, it's prisons. Just as slave plantations produce sugar and cotton to maintain agricultural and textile industries, prisons produce social control for political elites and corporate interests to continue the orderly extraction of labor, surplus value, profit, contain nationally oppressed racial and ethnic groups, and maintain the private appropriation of the social product, tax dollar-funded contracts. Prisons have been industrialized to the point where these interests have manufactured a new base of political support for this scheme, the labor aristocracy of prison guards. Prison guard unions, like the California Correctional Peace Officers Association, and I would say any of these, quote, peace officer associations, wield a disproportionate amount of political influence in social life, all in support of the same political and corporate interests responsible for their relatively privileged position in the labor market. The contemporary criminal justice system in America is one of the biggest conflicts of interests in U.S. history. The system you've vested with the responsibility to ensure your public safety has their financial gain tied directly to the number of people, quote, breaking the law, unquote, that they can hunt, catch, try, convict, sentence, and imprison. Rehabilitation and public safety are not in their economic interests. Criminalization and underdevelopment are. This is a fairly simple equation. Rehabilitation and social empowerment of offenders cannot be genuinely pursued because this would reduce the number of criminal offenders and parole violators, which would in turn decrease the need for so many police, lawyers, judges, deputies, jails, guards, 
prisons, and companies to support and supply them all. And most important of all, the need for your tax dollars to line their pockets. Public safety thus takes a backseat to personal gain. At the behest of the CCPOA, lobbyists to bolster their bids for re-election, legislators pass more laws and even stiffer penalties to broaden the net and deepen the pit for those who run afoul of, quote, the law to be cast into. Judges and lawyers continue to reinterpret the law to curtail constitutional protections, civil liberties, and access to the courts. Law enforcement sensationalize their wars on this or that type of crime to ensure you vote to pass bills and bond measures guaranteeing tougher laws, more militarized equipment, more police, and more guards to inflate their already inflated budgets and salaries. District attorneys maximize caseloads to ensure larger budgets and higher billings, while public defenders are forced to carry 25 cases at a time on shoestring budgets, reversing the burden of proof and effectively guaranteeing the conviction of low-income, overwhelmingly non-white offenders. Jails and prisons are overcrowded, underserved breeding grounds of racial violence, economic desperation, and social despair. All of this, while the guard union lobbies for more prisons, harsher laws, more draconian, dacron, sorry, more draconian judges and DAs, better salaries and benefits, and finally, to convince you all that prisoners are irredeemable animals worthy of the perdition the state has created. Microsoft, Mead, Global Tellink, Frito-Lay, Papermate, Walkenhurst, Mental Health Systems, Inc., Gregory Packaging, Incorporated, Westcare, BIC, Waldenhouse, and hundreds of other corporations make hundreds of millions of dollars a year off of men, women, and children being locked up in California, a growth industry more lucrative than oil and more corrupt than Chicago city government during Prohibition. Pursuing an indictment against individual offenders over the length and breadth of CDCR's history would not only be far too voluminous, but an act of futility, as it is the system itself which is corrupted. In case after case of proven criminal misconduct by CDC small r officials and staff, individual offenders have pointed to their conduct as reflective of the department's policies. I was following my training, or I was doing my job, has been repeatedly put forward as a cognizable defense to everything from facilitating rape to acts of murder in the furtherance of an illegal gambling enterprise. This standard excuse serves to prove no matter who is standing in the warden's shoes, sitting in the IGI ISU office, presiding over juvenile corrections, or sitting in the secretary of CDCR's chair, these corrupt practices are followed as a matter of, quote, policy. This is the very definition of a racketeering enterprise, action within with, quote, intent to otherwise promote, manage, establish, carry on, or facilitate, prom- facilitate promotion, management, establishment, or carrying on, carrying on of any unlawful activity, unquote. It must be understood. This is not a simple matter of poor correctional culture. This is a deliberate, well-thought-out racket presided over by law enforcement, correctional and political officials, with billions of dollars in play and virtually no public oversight. In a culture that touts greed as a virtue, corruption under these conditions was a virtual certainty. If there is ever to be, if there is to ever be 
any confidence in the integrity of the mechanisms of governance and public safety, the system itself must be indicted, its structural corruption exposed, and alternative forms of social organization explored as a surer means of our collective security. Joka Hashima Jinsai. And now, why the MOVE organization supports Mumia Abu-Jamal. Again, this is from In Defense of Mumia, which is an anthology of prose, poetry, and art by uh, folks like Amiri Baraka, Gwendolyn Brooks, Tom Feelings, Asada Shakur, Sonia Sanchez, and Mumia Abu-Jamal himself. This is written in, uh, copyrighted actually, in um, 1996. Long after the taking of life, it is not only a loss to the executed, but the family bears the pain the deceased suffered while waiting to be executed. When you kill the sense of contentment in anybody, you have committed the crime of murder to everybody. John Africa. As a community-based journalist during the 1970s, Mumia Abu-Jamal was exposed to the teachings of John Africa. Unlike the vast majority of Philadelphia journalists who had, and still have, chosen to ignore the truth and were biased against MOVE, Mumia chose to be honest with himself and to admit that John Africa did have the truth. Therefore, Mumia was compelled to write and talk about MOVE truthfully. In 1981, for example, when nine MOVE members were being tried for the murder of a Philadelphia cop, Mumia was broadcasting and telecasting events of the trial that other journalists dared not report, which caused enormous controversy with his supervisors and eventually landed Mumia Abu-Jamal on death row. Mumia's supervisors didn't want him to report the truth because the truth would benefit MOVE rather than the politicians and officials who want to keep all of MOVE imprisoned. So it followed that Mumia's supervisors would finally accuse him of slanting the courtroom events in MOVE's favor. But Mumia never backed down. He consistently reported the contradictions in the testimonies of the cops and of the DA, Willem Naur, who was caught changing the victim's autopsy report to fit the state's case. Mumia also revealed that the judge had allowed the DA to get away with such slimy tactics. Mumia's determination to do what is right enhanced his efforts in support of MOVE, and this is why we of MOVE support Mumia to this very day. In December 1981, months after consistently exposing the truth about the criminals running the Philadelphia justice system, four months after MOVE people were convicted of third-degree murder and sentenced to 900 years in prison just for being a united family, Mumia was shot, brutally beaten several times by the police, arrested, and then beaten again. During the early part of his trial, Mumia had asked that John Africa represent him because Mumia knew that John Africa could, without a doubt, effectively represent him and win his case. However, Judge Albert Sabo denied Mumia his right to have John Africa as his counsel, all too aware that John Africa had won his own case earlier that year. Move believes that Mumia was framed for the murder of a cop to justify sentencing him to die in a vendetta to silence him forever for publicly demonstrating his support for Move and for refusing to back away from the system's intimidation. John Africa's Move organization is fighting to eliminate exactly this kind of prejudice germ, which infects all of the world's life. Long live John Africa forever. Another poem by Leslie Ann Brown. 
listen. When you were here, I felt your breath just a second away when you said things like, I love you, come here, let me see how pretty you are, just like your mother, you would say. I want to feel the rope of your hair in my fingers, twirl it and twirl it and feel the coarseness that reflects experience and experience all wrapped up in twisted and knotted hair. And they ask me how hard it is to live without you. I answer, read into the soul of our history and ask every fatherless ghost child how she felt when they dragged her father away, forced him to work, whipped him, shot him, burned him, or I answer, read into the soul of, your, of our history because it begs to be studied and to be heard and I answer, listen. This poem is by Bethany Johnson, who is age 16. My synopsis of the world aspects of jejun mind. The righteous and wicked, dopeless voodoo gurus, prodigies, aqua sea foam, shame in a sea of stress. I'd say just another southern fried freak on a crucifix. Aphrodite euphoria, Crack fiends awaiting another hit. Lume and slang giving it to you strictly Beth. Unimpressed by an immaterial access. Blackness and anger. Whiteness and fear. Star-spangled banner. A blanket acneed with cigarette burns. Held in white eyes as dear. Manic depression searching my soul. No matter what your address. There is no place you can really call home. I live in the soil and fertilizer mushrooms in my brain. Lume, duke of my domain. The herb put a spell on me. It had me kiss the sky all around the world. Will it be tomorrow or till the end of time? And a poem by Arthur Amaker. After the March, Philadelphia, PA, Mumia Abu Jamal protest. Here, on this day of outrage, at this hour of protest, after the last wearied speech, after the last shout against the vicious machinations of the state, the banners waved, now torn, the placards risen, now dropped, an army of street sweepers coming to sweep the last footprints left from the march away with the dust. A father holds up his babies, laughing, infant lips kissing the wind, riddled with the blood and breath of the people, brother and sister play, dance and sing in the circle of the sights of ever-present riflemen, aloof to this line of fire, unaware of such a petty thing as repression. Even in the center of struggle, there is peace. Even in the midst of death, there is life. And this from Asada Shakur. Let us carry on our tradition to freedom. The first time I heard a tape of one of Mumia's radio broadcasts, it was the first time I fully understood why the United States government was so intent on putting him to death. Mumia, the only African political prisoner on death row, didn't use any inflammatory rhetoric. What he said was so clear, so true, that I had to stop everything I was doing and concentrate on his message. Mumia Abu-Jamal, journalist, husband, grandfather, and African-American, is not only articulate, he is brilliant. He has the ability to say what needs to be said in the clearest, most vivid way. His language, his strength, and his intelligence reminds me of one man, El-Haj Malik Shabazz, otherwise known as Malcolm X. 
Mumia Abu-Jamal is a man who has truly carried on Malcolm's tradition and the tradition of so many of our freedom fighters who have risked their lives for the freedom of their people. This year, as I celebrated Malcolm's birthday, I couldn't stop thinking about Mumia. Mind you, this is in the 90s. I couldn't stop thinking about the man who has spent 13 years on death row and remained strong, committed, and beautiful. Mumia, political activist, revolutionary, and humanist, has followed faithfully in Malcolm's footsteps. We can feel Malcolm's energy working through Mumia. We can feel Mumia's energy carrying on Malcolm's legacy. If Malcolm X were alive today, I know he would be fighting to save Mumia's life. If Malcolm X were alive today, I know he would be fighting to free all political prisoners. In the name of Malcolm X, I make a special appeal to you, sisters and brothers, to fight tooth and nail to save Mumia's life and to free him from the grips of his oppressors. As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you all to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Pratt, Sundiata Akoli, Mutulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. I urge you not to forget and not to portray our living heroes. If we ignore their struggle, we are ignoring our own. If we betray our living history, then we are betraying ourselves. We could not save Malcolm X, but we can save Mumia. We can save him, and we must save him because we love our brother and we need our brother to help us fight for our freedom. Free Mumia Abu-Jamal. Free all political prisoners. Let us carry on our tradition to freedom. All right, just a quick note. Geronimo Jijaga Pratt died in 2011 and Sundiata Akoli and Dr. Mutulu Shakur were both released. Sundiata Akoli last year and Mutulu Shakur this year. Okay, we are going to finish with hearing from Mumia Abu-Jamal, never skipping a beat to uh, give a clear message to the people. Trump indicted. The news that former U.S. President Donald J. Trump was indicted by a New York grand jury related to the Stormy Daniels controversy like a thunderclap. Few saw it coming, especially after earlier news accounts reported the grand jury would essentially take the month of April off. But what a difference a day makes. Once again, Trump made history again. Formerly the first president to be twice impeached, now becomes president ever indicted criminally who knows what will happen no one does doubtless his lawyers will mount a serious challenge to the statute of limitations and other legal theories so stay tuned because it ain't over at indictment because indictment is just a charge we shall see with love All right, that's our show. Free Mumia, free all political prisoners. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer.